Good morning, everyone. Trust uh, whether you are at home with us or here in the sanctuary that you would take out your phone apps, your Bible apps, and, uh, or your Bible. And we're going to be taking a look at the first chapter in the book of Philippians, which is a small book in the New Testament. So feel free to take that. And uh, this morning we're just going to walk through uh, the last few verses of that chapter. So feel free to keep it open so that we can refer back to it again and again. It's good to be with you and to see each one of you here. I don't feel like I've been put in a box at all. (laughs) But I appreciate the diligence with which you're showing the care that you are taking to abide by the guidelines that the government has set out for us. And we will get through this together. So let's take a look then at our passage in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21 and going through to verse 30. For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now hear to be mine. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be with you today. As we begin, let me ask you, how many of you still have a Christmas tree set up in your home from Christmas 2020? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. There's no shame in that. If it's down now, how long did you leave it up? Anyone? A few weeks. Is that normal for you or was it a little longer this year? That's normal. X, okay. Anybody else? Well, like the rest of you, we were unable to have our usual family gatherings in our home over Christmas. But I had hope. So my husband Brad and I thought we would keep the tree up just in case gathering restrictions eased in January, right? But they did not. But then, Family Day weekend was coming in February. Surely we were going to be able to host family by then. We could have a post-Christmas Christmas gathering. We still had the turkey and ham. So we kept the Christmas tree up. But, nope, restrictions were still in place. And we finally took the tree down the last couple of days before the end of February or something like that. (laughs) But I love the cultural season of Christmas. 
that anticipation of family coming to visit, pulling out all the heritage ornaments, decorating the house, and all those sentiments attached to that time of year. And I don't so much love just the other side of Christmas season, having to tuck it all away, saying, how did I ever fit this in before, right? It feels kind of sad to me to remove all those things and thoughts of routine and cold weather can get to us. And really, our feelings were all over the map, weren't they, this year? There's been much talk about the effects of the lingering pandemic and the toll that it's taking on, hum on mental health. And our culture is not used to being restricted in many ways at all. And so to have our lifestyles curtailed has been difficult. So how is it that as the same people, we can experience such a fluctuation of emotions from being high and excited uh, to feeling low and discouraged? That same Christmas ornament that I hold in my hand, one day it gives me so much excitement and joy and wonderful memories. And two months later, I hold it in my hand and it brings sadness to me as I tuck it away. Obviously, if we're going to be people of joy, we realize that we can't base our joy on our feelings. Because they are. They're all over the place, right? What is it that can bring us true joy? And so for the next several moments, I would like us to look briefly at this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the followers of Christ who were living in the city of Philippi. And this letter is often called Paul's joy letter. You can read this letter for yourself in the Bible called the book of Philippians. And um, of all the 13 books in the Bible attributed to Paul as either being written by him or having some kind of influence on them, Philippians is probably the most heartwarming and personal of the letters in nature. In fact, throughout the letter, the keynote is the word joy. And it's used at least 16 times. Paul speaks about the life worth living. And it brings him joy. His circumstances, however, at the time of writing this letter, might cause us to wonder how he can be feeling so joyful. So allow me to give us some brief context to when this letter was written. The group of Christ followers in Philippi to whom Paul is writing were mostly Gentiles and some prominent women as well. And they would provide for needy saints in other areas as well as one another in their fellowship. And when Paul begins his letter, he talks about how thankful he is for the fellowship of his church here. He has such good memories of them. In verse 3 he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then in verse 7 he says, I hold you in my heart. In verse 8 he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, aren't those lovely words to say about a group of people, right? I hope that we were all able to provide such good memories for other people that we engaged with this past week. And they might look back and say, oh, I yearn for you with my affection of Jesus Christ, right? But it amazes me that Paul sums up all he is experiencing in these words. He calls them my circumstances. You can see that in verse 12. And the New English translation says, for my situation, do you know where Paul is sitting as he's writing this letter to his friends in Philippi? He's in prison or under house arrest. You see, for Paul to live is Christ. And from the moment Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his whole life was lived so as to bring glory to Christ. 
Paul knew that Christ was seen through him, as one pastor said, not only when he was dancing, but also and even especially when the music stopped. And I know we've all had moments when we can be dancing, but for many of us right now, it might feel like the music has stopped. And for Paul the Apostle, he's still living a life found in Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ is our life, our struggles and difficulties often become the very places where the power of God is most revealed. Isn't that so? Have you ever been in such a place of desperation and openness that God was able to reveal his mighty power to you? I have. And I have to confess, I'm humbled that it had taken such a deep, heavy loss for me to recognize the reality and presence of God. I mean, I knew he was always with me, but I had been too into my own life and schedule and agenda to fully acknowledge him until he was all I had. Now, I've often said, let's not waste a good crisis. So, when our own abilities and safety nets and our bubbles have been stripped away, we can recognize that God is still with us. When the noise of the world is silenced, that's when we can better hear the voice of God. So let's not be wasting a good crisis. This is an excellent time for us to renew our relationship with God. So what does it mean then to die as gain? For, for me to live as Christ, but what does it mean to die as gain? Now if you come at this phrase quickly and lightly, I think we're going to miss it. Because imagine if it said this, for me to live as Christ and to die will be something better than Christ. That doesn't seem right, does it? That's blasphemous, right? For me to live as Christ and then finally I get to go on to something better? Isn't Christ enough for me today? That doesn't make sense. Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die is something better. But if it's something better, it's got to be a Christ-centered something better, doesn't it? Paul does not want anything but Christ. So if you don't believe that, read Philippians chapter 3. He wants Christ. He wants Christ all the time. He wants to know him. He wants to be like him. He wants to see him. He wants to be resurrected like him. He wants a body like him. He wants every part of Christ. So for me to live is Christ and to die, is it something different or better? No. My friends, we should not think of death this way. Because if we read this too quickly, we might think it means for me to live as Christ and to die, I finally get to experience all the glorious things in heaven. Right? For me, when I die, I get to see all my loved ones that have gone before. I don't think that's also what Paul is talking about. Andrew Davis, a pastor, shared this insight. For me to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. That's what it means. To die is more Christ. Now, Paul, and I'm so excited to share this with you more, uh, this morning. Um, Paul had already been given some enticing glimpses of Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus. How would you like to experience Christ like that? 
I mean, Paul could not have handled the full glory of Christ, so Christ kind of turned it down to a lower level, but it still blinded Paul physically for many days. But Paul never forgot that spiritual light. He never forgot that vision he had of Jesus Christ. It changed everything for him. It transformed him, and it put him into a lifelong yearning to experience that with Jesus Christ again. But that's not the only time. God, at some future time, gave Paul another glimpse. And he mentions it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Well, what does it mean to be caught up to the third heaven? Have you ever talked or considered that before? Paul continues on. He says, whether it was in the body... Or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. Wow, that must have been something. Inexpressible means he couldn't put it into words. Not permitted means you're not allowed to try to put it into words. And so Paul said, I'm just going to keep this one to myself. I won't even tell you that it's me who saw it. Right? He said, I know a man in Christ who went through this. But it was such an incredible experience. Paul tasted it. And he wanted more. He wanted to see him. He wanted to be in his presence. He was so hungry and thirsty for it every day. I had to ask myself when I was reading that, would that describe me? Do I yearn for Christ? Am I hungry and thirsty for him every day like Paul? So therefore, Christ's deepest longing here has now become Paul's deepest longing. And I hope you're asking right now, well, what is Christ's deepest longing for me? I want you to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus said, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of of the world. So what is he asking for you? He said, I want you to get all the way to the end and be glorified and to see me like I really am. I want you to see me 100%. I want you to see my full glory. I want you to be with me forever. And I want you to see my glory. That's Christ's deepest desire for you to be with him and see his full glory. Are you not hungry and thirsty for that too? When did it happen that we became so settled with this? Right? Just a few glimpses of the glory of Jesus and look how Paul transformed and lived his life so one day he could experience it again. How would we actually live if we longed for such an experience too? I think what is amazing about Paul here is that his primary motivation was not what was better for him, 
being in prison, but rather he was driven, one, by his desire to exalt Christ, and secondly, to see that those who are under his care progress in their own journey with Christ, to see Christ the way he saw Christ. My friends, I'm asking you, how do you see Christ? Are you living this picture that compels people to want to know more, to experience more of God, to desire more of this Christ that you follow? I want us to come down now to verse 27 and keep going. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's at this verse that Paul's letter turns from talking about his own personal circumstances to the ones that his Philippian friends were facing. And in this version of the Bible, the phrase manner of life has its meaning in the original Greek language as citizenship. So what Paul is saying is live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So to give us some context, Philippi was a colony of Rome and was the leading city of Macedonia. So if you were born in Philippi, you would have the status as a Roman citizen. So by Paul using that word, citizenship, he's reminding his fellow believers there, they are part of a community that is based on the gospel of Christ. And that citizenship requires a way of conducting ourselves. Paul is saying here that our visible life as a community must be worthy of the gospel. The way we treat each other, even in the middle of our differences, speaks volumes to the world around us, does it not? The most powerful testimony that you and I give to the gospel is seen in our relationships together. So what does that look like? I'll give you a sneak peek. It's found in the next chapter of Philippians in chapter 2. And those first verse 11 verses are powerful. They are powerful. Verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Well, let's ask this question. What is the gospel of Christ? Take a look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, You see, the first half of the gospel would flow from the gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the second half of the gospel comes from carefully, listen here, not the gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Isn't that interesting? How cool is that? Anyway, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Verse 27 says, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, J.D. Walt, in his own online writings called The Seedbed, states, the path between believing Jesus and becoming like Jesus 
The path between those two is called the way of the cross. That journey, the way of the cross, marks us as belonging to Jesus. So to belong to Jesus means to become identified with him. It means we are walking the way of the cross. It means ceasing to belong to the world and its pattern. Belonging to Jesus is Christ in you. So suffering for him is nothing to be afraid of. If we belong to Jesus, remember, we no longer belong to ourselves. Now, lives that are worthy of this gospel of Christ are marked by three essential qualities here. And the first one is this, steadfastness. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, says Paul, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. These Philippian people were also facing opposition. They may have been unable to stand up to it alone, but because they shared life together in the spirit of Christ, they could remain strong when facing these trials. The second quality is to strive together. Now, striving together implies effort, doesn't it? These believers, Paul says, they're not to be passive in living life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Striving requires effort and a team effort. Now, I want us to notice something here. Paul is not saying what the Philippian church should be striving against, right? It's something he says they should be striving for, which is the faith of the gospel. Yes, there are times when we need to stand against injustice and against evil, but the primary goal of our lives being lived together is to point people to the love and grace of Jesus. He is the one who changes lives. My friends at Skyview, I ask you, are you striving together? Are you rowing in the same direction? Do your actions of life live together point people to the love and grace of Jesus? Well, the third quality that Paul shares with us is this one. Courage under pressure. Verse 28 says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. You know, there are two groups of people who watch those who suffer in Christ to see if God is of greater worth than the comforts of the world. The first group is this, those who do not know Christ. And secondly, it's those Christians who need the confirmation of suffering to embolden their witness. When we speak of how Paul responded to his suffering with joy and contentment in his circumstance, I don't want to negate the difficulties and struggles that so many of us are dealing with today. Life is tough. We do hurt. We are suffering. And my friends, that's why God gave us church. Well, he gave us ecclesia, gave us the assembly, because he knew we need one another. We need to be encouraged by one another. I remember years ago, in 2012, our daughter Rayleigh graduated and was off to university. But not just to a place that was local, where she could stay at home and mom could continue to make meals and, you know, watch for her. No, she goes out to Vancouver. And then two years after that, she goes to Toronto for two years. It was really hard to send my kids away. But I noticed those who are a few years older than me 
that were also sending their kids away. And if they could do it, so could I. I remember years ago, my son Brock, he's about grade 8, was diagnosed with non-rheumatoidal arthritis. And by the time we recognized that something was really happening, it had flared throughout his whole body. It would take him 10 minutes to get down a flight of stairs. Uh, he moved a lot slower, and his knees were swollen right up. We thought he'd overdone it in outdoor ed class, but um, he was finally diagnosed. And they'd put him on some steroid shots and all that, and they'd sent him to physio to teach him how to work his joints in a way that would not bring any more harm to them. And I'm sitting there uh, with the physio lady, and she's talking to Brock about his joints and teaching him all this stuff. And I was wondering, I was feeling so sorry for this little guy, wondering, what is his future going to hold for him? And then two benches over, there was a young boy, two, three years younger than Brock, working with his dad and his physiotherapist, trying for the first time to manage to walk on his prostheses. You know, if others can do it, so can I. Right? I remember taking my dad. I said to him when he was going for some uh, stuff to do with his lungs, some testing, and I take him to the foothills and I said, Dad, I don't ever want to have to take you to this building, which was the Tom Baker Cancer Center. And four years later, I was sitting with him as he was receiving treatments for some of his cancer. And it was tough. And I was holding his hand, and as I looked around that treatment room, and I watched different family members caring for their own loved ones. I thought, if others can do this, so can I. Friends, we are in this together. And we need to draw courage from one another. So in conclusion, how do we see good and feel joy when what we think we're experiencing is bad? We think we're experiencing is bad. First of all, we must see greatness of the glory of God. Without that, nothing else will follow. A vision of God must fill our mind's eye, or these other things will capture our hearts and our thoughts. We must be filling our minds with the mind of Christ. You know, just yesterday I read an article about prominent evangelical leaders who have since turned their backs on God. A popular contemporary Christian songwriter wrote, Time for some real talk, he says. I'm genuinely losing my faith. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in it anymore. After announcing his divorce, author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye, a former pastor of a megachurch, renounced his faith, saying, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. A former pastor at Grace Family Fellowship down in the States took to social media and announced after 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I'm walking away from the faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. My friends, our faith in Jesus Christ cannot be based on feelings. Remember the Christmas tree? 
One moment we're feeling happiness and anticipation, and then in the next we feel sad. What happens for you when the blinking lights are gone? What happens for you when your prayers don't seem to be answered? Our faith must be based on the truth of Christ regardless of our circumstances. We must be filled with the mind of Christ. Secondly, we must be willing to be encouraged. Now we might consider and say there's ample reasons to turn our backs on God and to just live in despair. Suffering is real. And in Western Christianity, many of us have been taught if we only turn to God, ourselves and our loved ones will be kept physically safe. We will be financially successful. We will be spiritually saved. So then when suffering comes to our doorsteps, if we are not filled with that mind of Christ, if we are spiritually immature, if we are not with one another to draw courage and encouragement from one another, we can become disappointed in God, thinking he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. Right? You, you, my friends, we are not prepared to suffer. That's the problem. And I don't know where we got the idea thinking that we should be exempt from that. Scholars generally agree that Paul's statement on suffering for Christ indicates that not only Paul himself is experiencing life uh, in a difficult way, but the people in Philippi were too. So to be with the Philippians means that Paul was sharing in their suffering. Paul chose joy by trusting that God placed him perfectly to do a good work. Now, will we allow faith in a suffering and sovereign Savior give us great joy in the midst of our trials? And thirdly, we see good when we live out our faith. Paul advanced the gospel, and we have ministry to do. We must both rejoice and work. We must count it all joy and step out in faith. We must believe and do. On January 9th, 1985, Pastor Hristo Kuleshev of Bulgaria, I'm sure that's exactly how you pronounce his name, he was arrested for preaching in his church, even though the state of Bulgaria had appointed another man to pastor. His trial was a mockery of justice, and he was sentenced to eight months' imprisonment. But while in jail, the pastor made Christ known in every way that he could. And when he was released, this is what he wrote. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions. And it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. You see, God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. And so as we close for today, let me ask you this question. Is your attitude the same as Paul's? Is your attitude the same as Pastor Christo's? Do you think your life to live is Christ? You know, when George Mueller was asked the secret of his service, and if you ever get a chance to read his biography, I urge you to do so. It is so faith-building. All the things he did for orphans in England in the 19th century. And he said, the secret is this. 
There was a day when I died, when I utterly died to George Mueller, to George Mueller's opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, to its need for its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of my brothers and sisters and friends. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved unto God. Now, the way I interpret this testimony of Mueller's, you know, the day where he died to himself is the day he was wholly sanctified. When he gave everything to the Lord and lived his life um, as a transformed person. I hope we're able to see this morning that joy is not about a feeling of happiness. Right? Joy is not seasonal like Christmas trees or like having our wants met or our rights affirmed. It is a certainty in spite of our circumstances that what is ahead is far, far greater than anything we have left behind. That's a quote by C.S. Lewis, by the way. What lies ahead is far, far greater than anything we have left behind. May you be able to embrace your circumstances that you're living in today and in the weeks ahead as opportunities to bring glory to our Heavenly Father and to experience joy no matter what. So rejoice and continue to rejoice. And may your joy in all circumstances, even wearing masks, even safe distancing, all those things that we do, may your joy in those circumstances compel others to follow the suffering Savior. Let's pray. Our loving God, may your words fill our hearts. And may our minds focus on you. May the cares and worries of our days be seen in context of what it is we gain, whether we live or we die. It is more of you. We desire more of you. So thank you for the encouragement of Paul's experiences on the Damascus Road and, and the third heaven. Oh, Father, would you help us as the church to act in unity, to not be divisive over how to respond to pandemic guidelines or to demand our rights or entitlement to timely health care. Father, may we encourage one another. May we meet one another's needs. May we share words of joy and of hope. May our actions cause others around us to consider how we can live these lives filled with hope, even in these circumstances. And so I ask, oh God, would you empower each one today with your Holy Spirit anew? May these days open our eyes to your presence and to your work around us. We desire you. We want you to be our focus. So train our eyes and our hearts to do just that. We request these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, and our Savior. Amen. Amen. You receive our benediction for the morning as we head into the week ahead. May what you say and do reflect the love of God our Father, the joy and the hope of Jesus, our suffering Savior, through the boldness of the Holy Spirit. May you go in peace. Amen.